good to see you. If you weren't here with us, a happy new year to you too. Um, we have finished out the Christmas season. We celebrated for 12 days. Here we are. This is the first Sunday of the Epiphany season. And we've been, we've been enjoying the incarnation of Christ. We've been enjoying the announcement of the Lord's reign and his workings, his transformation of the world. And we continue that, that season of announcement today. So along with the announcement of Christ as the king at his birth, and then the universal announcement uh, that he was the universal king through the visit of the Magi. So we had the shepherds declaring, the king has come for Israel. The Magi come to declare, this is the king overall. Today, we look at the announcement that the Messiah's mission, the Christ's mission was beginning. And through the Epiphany season, we will follow, we'll trace the ministry, the working of this Messiah in his mission to free the world from darkness and free the world from bondage to sin. That's what gets announced today. The Epiphany, this Epiphany means revealing, revelation, unveiling. And the Epiphany we look at today is at his baptism, the revealing that this long-awaited Christ, the long-awaited king, had come. His mission was beginning. And as we'll see today, the rule of this king is unlike anything anyone imagined. The kind of king he is. The kind of rule that he brings. Christ Jesus is not like any other king. So he could not rule like any other king. So we turn to Matthew chapter 3. If you have scriptures, please do look. We're at the end. All right, not the end of the chapter. Uh, verses 14 to 17. And we see that Matthew relates very basically that Jesus has come from his home in Galilee. He's this Christ that was born in Bethlehem. He's been raised, he's been serving as a carpenter in his hometown of Nazareth. And he, Matthew says, he came from Galilee, came down to the Jordan River where John had been baptizing. Just preceding this account, these little verses we're looking at, we learn about the nature of this baptism. What's going on there at the river? John tells the people gathered, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the fire. So John the Baptist has a very conscious mission. He knows what he's doing. He knew he'd been sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, that this was one more powerful than he, his job was to challenge the people to repent of collective rebellion, to turn from the ways they'd been walking, to provide also a means to express that repentance individually. It's a collective proclamation, 
but it can only be responded to individually. And so as the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, John clearly says, this baptizing work that I'm doing is a preparatory work for the Messiah. It allowed the people to express a heart for change. But as we talked about with the kids, the enabling power to change, that is when God would replace hearts of stone with living hearts, when he would take his law and he would write his law on hearts, that would come with the Messiah's power. That would come with fire, with the Holy Spirit. So what they're doing at the river is expressing a desire for change. John's very clear with them. This isn't changing you. This is expressing a desire for it. So when Jesus comes to be baptized, John is predictably puzzled. He, John shares with us the question that many of us have when we come to this passage. Why does Jesus undergo a baptism of repentance? Why is it that Jesus does an action that expresses a desire for heart change? He doesn't need it. He's the only one there on that day. He's the only one ever that doesn't need it. He's the sinless one, the worthy one, nothing to repent of. So Matthew records John's response when Jesus comes to him and places himself in John's hands. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus answers this. His answer, and then what happens, the, the experience that all the gospel writers record, it, it reveals quite a bit. John consents, goes along with it, when Jesus says, let it be so now. Jesus is agreeing with John. You're right. I do not need to be, I do not need a baptism of repentance. That's right. But let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is affirming, yes, this isn't the typical baptism. I am not like the others here, but let it be so now. It's suggesting a difference, and he's saying it's fitting and proper to fulfill or complete or perfect, bring to its conclusion all righteousness. That if righteousness is going to be, this must happen. If the world is going to have righteousness, this must happen. So what, what does this mean? We know he's not coming to repent of his own sins. It's a larger act than that. It's an act of ultimate signification. So Jesus enters these waters, and he places himself in the hands of John the Baptist, not on his own behalf, but as a representative of the Jews first, but also of all mankind. This is a second Adam act. So you know, we think about the acts of Adam and Eve as having ultimate, lasting consequence. 
Jesus acts in that same way. He's the second fulfillment of a human being. He's the second um, perfect human being. And so Jesus undergoes a baptism of repentance, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people of God and for anyone who will follow him, for anyone who will own that act as theirs. It's a profound moment. For 30 years, Jesus has been living a normal course of life in Galilee. He'd seen the birth of siblings. He learned the carpenter's trade from Joseph. He'd seen Joseph die. He had struggled through relative poverty. He'd lived a peasant life. There's not always need for carpentry work. They had recessions. But in this act, everything changes. That normal course of life that he was living, it now takes the pivot. Jesus of Nazareth steps into this long foretold role of Messiah. Yes, he was always fully God, always fully man. As he's growing up there in Galilee, fully God, serving as a carpenter. He'd not yet stepped into his role. Now he does so. He begins to enact his role as Messiah. And it becomes a moment of revealing, of epiphany. There's bound to be something powerfully dramatic that happens when he begins his mission. And so it was in his role as carpenter, carpenter of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary, that Jesus walked from Galilee to the Jordan River. But it says Messiah, not merely son of Joseph and Mary, not merely man of Nazareth, that he's washed. Because in this washing, he's communicating on behalf of Israel. He's communicating on behalf of people. An admission that the people have sinned, that the people need washing, that there's dirt on our hearts. I, I love the way that those kids were expressing this. It's like, you dirty hearts, you got dirt on your heart. I, I would not have come up with that. That's, that's good. And so it's as if he, he says, as the eldest brother of the human family, second Adam, father, we have sinned. Father, we have rebelled. Father, we have turned away. And we turn from that today. As he goes in, he turns on our behalf. He turns from that. Look now, this is his appeal, look now with mercy and favor. It's intercessory. Intercessory means you, you stand in the place of. You make an appeal in the place of a representative plea, and it's done for those who do not, who cannot make that plea for themselves. So as Messiah, Jesus enacts the plea. And it's marvelous. I mean that word in its fullest. It's marvelous. 
as, as an intercession, it's Jesus' first act as a high priest. It's the first time uh, he stands in front, stands between the people and God. And it's his first solemn declaration as the second Adam. And so, as a profound event, see what happens. The Lord manifests, manifests, reveals, shows the significance of, of this, what's happening. The heavens rend open. The clouds <clears throat> part. And in a visible form, like a dove, the other gospels tell us, not as a dove, so, I know, I, I grew up thinking, and this dove flew down from heaven. Something that suggested a dove. It, it, it was like a dove. The Holy Spirit drifts down, descends, and rests on Jesus, the Christ. And here, the Father communicates the same message that, that the Son has just communicated. The Father echoes, the Father affirms what the Son is declaring here. In this act of baptism, the father says, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. He says, yes, you are the Christ. Yes, I will indeed acknowledge what you are, what you're requesting here. I will indeed give favor to my people because of you. Because you have asked it, I will give it. Perfect one. Yes, the people have sinned. Yes, the people have turned away. But I accept this representative act. And finally, he, he sets Jesus on his messianic course by anointing him with the Holy Spirit. Jesus always had the Holy Spirit. That could be a puzzle for us. He's fully God and fully man. This isn't the granting of the Holy Spirit that he lacked. This is an anointing for, for his task. The specific task. It's a visible affirmation. It's not just for him. It's for those standing by. That his commission is to begin the ministry of reconciling the world to God to begin the ministry of reconciling alienated Israel to the God they have offended. And God does something more wonderful here. If, if rending the heavens open and sending the Spirit down isn't enough, he echoes his own words that he had already given long, he'd given 700 years before through the prophet Isaiah. God speaks his own words again. Isaiah 42, he had said, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I have put my spirit on him and will bring justice to the nations. This moment at the River Jordan, that, he says that again. He echoes his own words of long before. He gestures back to the promise, this promise that I had made through Isaiah. It's fulfilled now. And he encourages Jesus in his mission. You are my son, whom I love. In whom is my delight? Behold, my servant, in whom is my delight? My son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Yes, you are the one. 
And then he does what he had promised he would do. I will put my Holy Spirit upon him so that he may do the work of bringing justice to the nations. In the history of God's unfolding work, what was happening was profound. This is a never-to-be-repeated event, a never-preceded event, never-to-be-repeated. Prophecies given a thousand years in advance, affirmed then again and again, finally coming into fruition at this moment. Unexpected ways. It bears pondering. It, it also demands faith. It asks for faith from us. As we've already noted, Jesus, the sinless one, acts as a representative in this repentance. Just who is he representing? We ought to think about that. Who is he representing? It's easy to say, oh, Israel and everyone. Let's think a little more clearly about that. At the moment when the Holy One of God, the Sinless One, walks into the waters of repentance, he's doing it on behalf of people who have rejected his, his rule, who do not want his rule, who do not want him interfering in their lives, who do not want his demands. That's why they need repentance. Repentance. People with dirt on the heart. It's a second Adam act, and so it's on behalf of sinful humanity, the fallen ones, the ones who have, fall, who have fallen in Adam's wake. So the people, the people standing there at the Jordan River, they see just another Galilean peasant walking into the waters. But it's the glorious one who left his throne in the heavenlies. And at this moment, this is long before, this is before anyone has heard John's testimony about him, before anyone has said, behold the Lamb of God. This is before anyone has placed their faith in him. It's before he's done any marvelous acts. It's before he has healed anyone. It's before he's taught a single word. It's before anyone has called him Christ. Jesus acts on behalf of broken down souls. Jesus is not responding to faith in him. He's the initiator. He's acting on behalf of people who have rejected him. Long before any of us existed, Jesus went into the waters to give full repentance on our behalf. We're included in this second Adam act. And he fulfills all righteousness. This is wonderful gospel truth. Because it's a historical moment, it can kind of sweep past us. It's wonderful gospel. He acts on our behalf, not because we made ourselves attractive to him. 
Not because we do something to make him like us. This is 2,000 years ago he is acting on our behalf. He's not responding to anything in us. He's not responding to our good heart, to our kind intentions. He acts for us because he loves us and wants to set us free from the burden of sin. He wants us to be reconciled to God. So note this. Jesus, the sinless, loves and cares for people who are totally sinful, for people who are uninterested in him or even hate him, who have values that are inside and out and opposite from his. He wants to fulfill righteousness for them, for me. So in terms of a Essential values and interests. Let's lay hold of this. In terms of essential values and interests, he has nothing in common with those he gives everything for. Fallen people's essential values are for themselves. That is our bent. His essential values and interests are for his glory for his honor, and to embrace with his love all those he's created. So that's the character of our God. It's the character that he's given us through his Holy Spirit. If we've received his Holy Spirit, that way of being has been given to us. And maturing Christian character looks like more of God's character opening up in our lives, more of God's character showing up in us. Practically, this means we increasingly value what God values. That is, we're more and more interested in Him. We're more and more inclined to love what He loves and to hate what He hates and to love like he loves, like he loves. More light in us means we're drawn to more light in others. We're drawn to his light in others. And so that means we will be drawn wherever there is interest in truth. So whether it's in someone who's given themselves to, to Christ or not, it, it may be in someone who's who's alienated from him. But if there is an inclination towards truth in them, we will be drawn to that. Wherever he's working, light in us is drawn to light. And so because of light seeking light, a person who's maturing in the character of Christ, God's character is being shaped in us, does strange things. The strange thing, especially noteworthy, of befriending and loving people very unlike himself or herself. This is not a normal thing. So think of the disciples. Simon the Zealot, who had committed himself to opposing the Romans and all those betrayers among the Jews who cooperated with the Romans, becomes friend and fellow disciple with Matthew, the tax collector, a betrayer. 
Paul the Pharisee. Paul the Pharisee, who had grown up despising unclean Gentiles. He would not have breathed the same air as an unclean Gentile, keeping his distance, much less having ever touched one or eaten a meal with one. Paul the Pharisee, with the light of Christ in him, became a spiritual father to countless Gentiles. And he was killed because of his commitment to them and to bring the love and message of Christ to them, who he'd hated, had contempt for. The character of Christ in us causes strange things to happen. Whenever God has moved powerfully in the history of the church, whenever we might call it revival, there's always, along with it, an element of bringing together people, not just of different backgrounds, that's noteworthy, different backgrounds, but former enemies come together. Because what brings God's people together is a common need for God's mercy, not hobbies, not musical tastes, not temperament. What brings people together is not common interests, but a common need for the mercy of God. I am personally blessed by this. It's a wonder to me. I, I continually am surprised by it because it's so strange. Many of my dearest friends, some of the most significant relationships in my life, I seem to have nothing in common with. Like on paper, if you, you looked at us, you would struggle to find anything that we connect on. Just, I, 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 I don't hunt. I don't fix things. I don't, uh, you know me enough. I have deep, intimate friendships with people totally unlike me. But what we have is love for God. That's what we have. Love for God, and we see that we can help each other. We see that we can serve each other. And when we serve each other, and when we encourage one another, we experience the character of Jesus working in us, and that's awesome. It brings joy, and it's strange. So, again, this is the character of Christ, like Jesus who walked into the waters of repentance so that he could take on the sin of others and move towards others who dislike his rule. Us. His character, like that, his character moves people, his people, toward each other on the basis of grace and favor. We just give it. His character in us wants to give favor. Not merely on the basis of common interest. Our immature flesh demands friends to be just like us. If, that, if you seek friends to be just like you, I just want you to know that's your flesh. It's fine. We do need to have, we want to have, we do need to have compatriots, companions, who understand our stage of life, who understand, you know, what, what we're going through at that moment. The character of Christ gives us much more. You can settle for that. The 
character of Christ gives us friends of all different ages, gives us brothers and sisters who are so different than us, who can, who can fill out our weaknesses, who can help us where we can't help ourselves. A character maturing in Christ will delight wherever there's hunger for God. That's from him. And will want to walk in those relational waters. This is following Jesus into waters of giving, of serving. And those are waters of grace. So this was Peter's epiphany. And we conclude here. This was Peter's epiphany when God sent him to that Roman household of Cornelius. I now realize, he said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter's standing, he's marveling. That truth that there's light here. God has granted light here, and I like it. I like it. I should hate these people. It's a Roman soldier, but I like it. Grace. So let's join the Lord as he changes us. This is his desire for us. Let's join him. Christ reveals himself in us as we follow in his steps. His character shapes us. When we move as he moved, with the same self-giving love that he brought back to earth, it was alien to the earth. Self-giving love. We had alienated it. He brought it back. And his willingness to represent and act on behalf of shame-filled, dark, desperate people that's not something we can come by naturally. We can't just rouse ourselves to love those who hate us. It's the unique love of God. So we grow in that love. You ask yourself, how can I grow in divine love? We grow in that love when we begin to make sacrifices in order to know him. When the chief thing we want is to know him. And as we know him, we want him to be known. As we know him, as we love him, it spills out. Lord, we ask today that as you have shown us your heart and you have acted in profound ways to win us back, to reconcile us to you, we ask that our hearts would be reconcilable, that our hearts would desire to be fully aligned with yours and that our character would be aligned with yours. Lord, work in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus.